Hi, how's it going? All right. It's good. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love the gospel choir. Did oh, you guys enjoy so it? Good. It's oh, so good. So good. It's really good. Real. Um, how? <laughs> tell us a bit about yourself, Stephen. Um, what What would you like to know? Uh, where do you live? Uh, I live in London. So um, I live in London. I worked in London for about eight years as a criminal defence barrister. So I used to represent people accused of crimes, and uh, and then I moved to start working for a church um, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, so that's what I do now, yeah. Pretty cool, pretty cool. Um, and what will you be telling us about this whole week? Because um, Stephen's going to be doing the evening talks for us. Yeah, so I'm doing a lunchtime talk tomorrow and then the e evening talks on uh, Thursday and Friday. So, so the real reason I'm here, uh, if, if I can sum it up in a sentence with a lot of commas, is because um, I, when I was at university, I encountered in a new way someone called Jesus Christ. And... Jesus is still the most significant person I've ever encountered in my life, and encountering him has transformed my life. And so I, I just consider it a real joy and a really uh, fun thing to just tell people why I was captivated by him at university and why I still am, all these years later, as captivated by him now, today. And so that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be sharing some different things um, from uh, an account of his life, which you have on your table. Um, which looks like a mini moleskin notebook, but is free. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen. Take it away. Amazing. Thanks. There's quite a lot of music on this stand, but um, I wouldn't hurt your ears by trying to sing it. Um, so I'm just going to throw it away, if that's okay. Wow. Those guys, they know how to sing. Um, uh, so I wanted to talk to you tonight about uh, real satisfaction. Uh, and... Can life ever be enough? I'm just going to slightly move this. Um, can life ever be enough? And uh, lots of us, I think, are looking for satisfaction. Satisfaction is that feeling that you enjoy what you have achieved, what you have attained, what you have in your hands. And you can enjoy it. You can celebrate it. You can feel satisfied by what you've done and with how things are. And when you have satisfaction, when you find real satisfaction, it almost feels a little bit like peace. It feels a little bit like joy. It feels a little bit like you're able to rest. Like, this is good. This is what I wanted. I've got it. I can enjoy it now. And it feels like it's enough. And it might be you feel that tonight, you know, actually, that's where I'm at. That's exactly all right. It's funny you say that, because I was just thinking that today. You might be sitting there thinking, that's exactly me. Um, you know, you're perfectly happy with every single aspect of your life. It's unfolding just as you planned. Every one of your relationships is just the way you would want it to be. It's in just the right place. You're getting on great with your family, your housemates, your hall corridor, um, with your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Uh, you're nailing your studies. Your extracurricular activities, to be honest, are a grad recruiter's dream. And um, you're, you're just hitting home runs for fun. And you can't remember the last time you worried about anything. You have a deep and lasting sense of fulfillment. And there's nothing in this world that you long for that you don't already have in your hands. And if you feel like that tonight, I just want to say I'm really happy for you. And I'm sure everyone else in this tent is really happy for you um, that you feel so great about life. That's wonderful. But I think lots of us have experienced at some point uh, just, just a sense, maybe, that there's a disconnect between how things are and how we might want them to be. And... You see, it's funny, really, because in 2018, in Nottingham, we have more routes to fulfillment, more routes to satisfaction than ever before. There's more opportunities for personal growth. Uh, there's an extraordinary 
number of opportunities for how you might want to spend your time, uh, how you might want to live your life. There's more freedom of career. There are more um, experiences available to us. Um, there are technological um, opportunities that previous generations could have dreamed of. I mean, just think of the technological advancements of the last 10 years. Um, uh, nanotechnology, brain implants, Tinder. I mean, it's, you know... <laughs> You know, it's funny, but you have at your fingertips, if you just swipe left or right, you have the opportunities, you know, to begin or end, even before they start, thousands of potential relationships. Uh, and there's an abundance of choice, but it doesn't often lead to an abundance of contentment. And so often, um, yeah, so often it feels like true satisfaction seems to elude us. And I found that to be the case. So, uh, so at my university where I went, um, they were a bit weird, if I'm completely honest. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't examine people as you went through the course, because that would be too easy. They decided to hold up all the exams to the end of three years. So your entire degree was based on, uh, for me, it was actually based on nine three-hour exams in a six-day period at the end of three years. Um, so some of you are like, Yes, I could completely blag those exams. I just worked really hard at the end. Some of you were like, that sounds like a nightmare. It was actually quite tough. And, um, and you know it's a bad week when you wake up in the morning and you're really relieved and happy because you only have one three-hour exam that day. That's a bad week of your life. And, um, and that was my experience. But in, in the months leading up to that, that particular week, which is forever scorched on my mind, um, I, I, everything I was thinking was, my life is going to be awesome and amazing when I get through this week. Like, I just cannot wait. I'm going to know true joy and happiness and complete and utter real satisfaction when I get through this week. All I have to do is get through this week of exams, and then hopefully I'll never have to sit an exam again. Uh, you know, I, I, it'll be all right. You know, fingers crossed I'll have a degree. And um, a bit tight there, but, you know, and, uh, and, and actually then I'll have lots of time. Like, I can go out, you know, to the pub, go out to a club. I don't have to worry about waking up in the morning to revise, so I can just go out as long as I want, have as much fun as I want. Uh, I can see my girlfriend as much as I want. There's no pressure around that, so we're just going to have a great time. And I can do all those things that people do when they're not revising, you know. And I, was kinda, I wasn't really sure what those things were, because um, it felt like I'd been in this kind of revising state for quite a while. But I, I was thinking, like, you know, I could look out from my halls, and I could see a park. And I thought, people walk around parks, so I walk around the park. And I could also see a pond at the far corner of the park. And I was like, people feed ducks. So like, I can go and feed the ducks. Like, I have so much time on my hands. I'm just going to be walking around in a state of perfect happiness and tranquility. And then I got through the exams. And I walked out. It was torrential rain. Um, and, uh, and it was like a, a, a portent, a tortent of what it was telling. And then I, um, I, I, I thought, okay, well, that's a good feeling. I felt a little bit of relief. I went to the pub. We went onto a bar. We went onto a nightclub. If I'm honest, it wasn't all that. It wasn't all that much fun. I got a bit bored about 2 a.m. and came home. Uh, the next day, I thought, oh, well, I hang out with my girlfriend. Somehow, I don't know how, maybe because we, we hadn't seen each other for a while, we got into the biggest argument we had ever had in our relationship and didn't speak to each other for about a week and then I thought fine I'll go for a walk around the park and I took some bread just in case and I got to the I got to the pond and I started feeding the ducks and I thought do you know what I don't know why people do this it's not that much fun and um and then two swans got out of the pond attacked me and mugged me for my bread they actually took it out of my hands and chased me out of the park 
And I got home and I thought, this is crazy. This is, I was waiting for this time for a whole three years. And now I get here and it's not all it's cracked up to be. I don't feel any sense of satisfaction whatsoever. It was almost like all my hopes this time quite quickly fell short. So what do we do? What do we do with our desires? What do we do with our hopes for fulfillment? What do we do with that deep sense within us that there are things, opportunities, relationships, careers, successes, hopes, connections that we would long to come to pass and yet we're not sure if when they will, they'll be enough. They'll give us that real satisfaction. Well, most people say there are, there are two options available to you. One is to, to just reduce your desires. So like settle, you know, just, just like let's just give up, give up the idea of wanting more, give up the idea of striving for more, give up the, you know, just convince yourself, I don't, I don't have these desires, I'm going to pretend like I don't have the desires for more, I'm going to pretend like I don't want a deeper relationship or this or that, or the other. I'm just going to put my head in the sand, grip my teeth and just hope that those desires go away. You know, so you're satisfied with less. That's, that's one you know, option. Or you could reduce your hope of happiness so that you're not as impacted when you don't get what you most desire. Zadie Smith, uh, the author, said, resign yourself to the lifelong sadness that comes from never being satisfied. Someone who's written books that lots of people think are awesome, they are, some of them, brilliant books, and who's very successful in every sense and has made money, resign yourself to the lifelong sadness that comes from never being satisfied. See, the thing is, for me, I don't find either of those two options particularly hopeful. Like, I don't back myself to suddenly curtail my desires in such a way that I'm happy with almost nothing. And I don't back myself to reduce my hope of happiness to, to such an extent that I'm just okay with being miserable for the rest of my life. Now, neither of those seem particularly good options for me. So what do we do with our desires? Do we learn to hope for less, even though we'd hope for so much more? What if the problem we face is that our desires aren't too great, they're too small. They're not too strong, they're too weak. What if there was a way of seeing your desires completely and utterly met, finding real satisfaction, if only you would see those desires, make those desires as great as they were intended to be. So we're going to look at a little situation in one of these um, uh, uncover books, which are hopefully on the tables around you, um, where Jesus speaks exactly into this issue. So um, this is John's account of Jesus's life. And it's in John 6, which is on page 34 of the little gray Moleskine notebook, Moleskine notebook type things that are on your tables. And... Um, we're going to pick up the story at John 6 from verse 25. So it's on page 34, and um, I'm just going to read this. That's quite an eerie sound when that happens. Um, so when they, there, there had been a number of people who had come to Jesus and uh, uh, asked him 
and, and, and they'd be listening to him, and then Jesus had performed a miracle, and they'd, they'd all got bread, and it was amazing. And then afterwards, um, Jesus goes off, and they follow him, and they all sail across this lake. And then this is where we pick it up, verse 25. So when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. It's interesting. Um, so these people who come to Jesus, they come across this lake. It seems they come, Jesus says, because they've eaten their fill and they felt some kind of of satisfaction. So they've eaten this bread he's provided and they have a taste of satisfaction. But it seems that taste of satisfaction has left them wanted more and that means that they've been prepared even to jump into boats and cross a lake to try and find him to get some more bread. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that sense of a taste of satisfaction leaving you wanting more. Um, I don't know if anyone here um, enjoys going to, um, there's a very fine restaurant, I don't know if it has a branch in um, Nottingham called McDonald's. Um, so I don't know if anyone enjoys a, a cheeky guilty pleasure McDonald's every now and again. There's a few hands, a few hands, very brave hands around the room. Yeah, okay, a few more now, people. Late adopters, still, they were brave, but you're, okay, that's fine. And, um, and, and so the thing is, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Sometimes I'll be driving down a motorway, I'll stop at Mackey D's, and I eat a Mackey D's, and there's a sense in which, as I'm eating it, I think this is exactly what I need. And then for about five minutes, I have almost like a feeling of being full, but it's also like a feeling of feeling a bit sick. I don't know if you've ever experienced that at McDonald's. And um, that's just me, uh, McDonald's Inc. And, um, uh, and, uh, and then within about 10 minutes, you're feeling, actually, I, I don't feel full. But the only way I feel I could be full is if I have a whole nother McDonald's. Anyone ever experienced that sensation? Like, it's almost like you just, I just, I, there's no, nothing else I can do. The only thing that will take the slight feeling of sick and the slight feeling of, still dissatisfaction away is eat a whole nother McDonald's um, and then you do it or at least I have and um, <laughs> and then you feel actually it's not quite there yet maybe that was just two-thirds of my stomach full and basically you can go on like that until you die and so um, uh, <laughs> but it's interesting lots of things in our lives are designed to leave us wanting more so social media the, the brightest minds in the world are paid a serious amount of money to design apps and user interfaces that leave you wanting more. More likes, more followers, more stimulation. They're targeted that way. Apple, some might say, designs handsets which satisfy you for a while, but then quite quickly they degrade and they leave you wanting more. They're not doing what they promised they would do. You need to upgrade or pay 50 whatever pounds for a new battery or whatever it is you need to do. Lots of things are designed to leave us 
wanting more. And Jesus, fascinating to me, uses bread here as a really powerful metaphor. Bread was so important in that culture. It signified so much. It wasn't like today. You know, it, today, people, some people don't even eat bread. They're like, you know, I don't eat bread. I survive on kale smoothies and cashew nuts. Like bread is so 2008, you know. Um, but in that culture, you, you didn't have that choice. There wasn't much meat. It's a hot, arid climate. You don't eat bread, you die. Bread is key to your physical nourishment. It's absolutely essential to your sustenance. But it also represented something even deeper than that. It represented emotional, social needs and desires. The bread signified connection because you shared it. You broke it together. You gathered around the table and ate it. And when you shared a meal, it was like the high point of the day when you would connect with those in the community you loved and you honored. So if you had a seat at a table with someone, it meant that you mattered, and it meant that you mattered to them. It was that important. And in that sense, we're all looking for bread. We have deep-seated physical and social needs and desires. And actually, if you think about it, the most effective advertising you see plays on your desire for satisfaction. It promises to meet your desires, to give you satisfaction, to cure your discontent. But the thing is, the things that are offered to you don't actually deliver. You know, they always leave you wanting more. Alan de Botton says, adverts create within us the reminders of a buried longing. They kind of stir that up within you. But the things but they withdraw from doing anything wholehearted about quenching those longings. They remind you of a deep buried longing which is deep within you, but they withdraw from doing anything about quenching those longings. Anyone else? That's quite fun. If anyone else wants to do that, it's quite fun. Um, and um, uh, that wasn't like a, a subtle visual aid. Like, Lawrence didn't represent advertising walking <laughs> behind me there. If only I was that thoughtful. Um, <laughs> just lost at the back. And um, so, yeah, so they, 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 they kind of stir. I don't know if you've experienced that when you've watched advertising. Like, they stir something quite deep and visceral within you. But, but the things they're giving aren't going to quench those desires. And it's not just adverts, I've found. We kind of do it to ourselves. I don't know if you've experienced this. You know, you, uh, you, you're having a great day. You're maybe having a great night out. And suddenly, the thought occurs to you, what if I be, could be having more fun somewhere else? Like, one of my friends isn't here. Where are they? Like, where's that friendship group gone? What, what's going on tonight? Like, oh, I could have, could have played in that football match, but I decided to do this. What if that would have been a better use of my time? And you start thinking, oh, maybe, maybe the FOMO rises within you. You start thinking, could I have spent my time in a better way that would have left me feeling more fulfilled? And you start second-guessing. And then, of course, you go into the kind of universal... Um, space for just ascertaining whether your phone is imagined or real. You go onto Instagram, and you and you see what people have been up to. You know, what are they talking about? What, what's the Instagram live filter? You know, uh, oh, why wasn't I invited to that party? That looks much more fun than this party. You know, why wasn't I there? And you kind of start to compare your behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reel, and you would have been quite happy, but you can make yourself discontent. You, you worry that there's a more satisfying option, a more fulfilling path out there. 
And actually, when I was 22, um, I started working as a barrister. And the first year of working as a barrister was like a year-long job interview. So um, it was at this very smart uh, office, which is called a chambers, which is where barristers work. And when I say smart, I mean smart like they had a butler. Like, not every office has a butler. It was a bit disconcerting when I arrived. And... Um, I don't like I'm in James Bond. There's odd job. It was so strange. And um, and I, I kind of I kind of arrived and it turned out there were eight other candidates for one job. We were there for the whole year together, all eight of us, and at the end, seven of us had to leave and only one person at best got the job. So it was kind of like a little bit like the apprentice meets the hunger games. Like that was that was my experience of that year. But the, the weird thing was the whole year you had to walk in and out of this office through a particular door. And next to the door, there was a massive um, sign which had the names of everyone who worked for that company inscribed on the sign. 45 names. And when you got a job there, they put your name on the sign. And you know, for every one of those 365 days, I would walk past that sign like 10 times a day. And I'd be like, one day, one day. What would it be like to have your name on that sign? Like, if I could get my name on that sign, I wouldn't ever need anything else, God. That would be me happy for the rest of my life. Like, if I could just get my name on the sign, then all my hopes for fulfillment and contentment and joy, they would all be satisfied in a moment. And actually, I'd be set for life. I'd never need anything else as long as I lived. And then they kind of, on the final day of the 12 months, they phone you all. And we were together, which is kind of a slightly weird um, thing to do, but we, we were all together, and they started, all our phones started going, and then my phone went, and it was a little bit like, um, does anyone enjoy watching X Factor? Oh. Um, judges' houses, even? No, I, I'm glad you said that. I, I, I don't either. Um, and, um, but someone told me, Tom, you like it, don't, Tom, Tom enjoys watching X Factor, and he was telling me that the, um, that on, 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 on X Factor, judges' houses, they have this way of telling people news that draws out the emotional tension. So they kind of say, as they said to me, they said, Stephen, you've done very well this year. And I was thinking, I'm in. Yes. And then they said, but as you know, we've only got one place and there are eight candidates. You're like, oh, I don't like that but. That's not a good but. I don't like that. Um, and, then, and then they say, but, and I, oh, I like that but. That's a really great but. But we're delighted to tell you that, that you've got the place. You're in. And I, told, I was absolutely so thrilled. So we went, we celebrated, it was amazing. Then, two days later, they put my name on the sign. So I was kind of, for the rest of that week, I kind of walked past the sign 20 times a day. And I kind of look at it and just kind of hope no one saw me take a kind of discreet photo of it as I walked past. Like, it's on, it's on the board, it's on the board. And for the whole of that week, I was just so full of joy, so excited, so happy. And then the second week, I walked up to it and I suddenly realized something that hadn't really occurred to me before, which is that names went from the most senior to the least senior. The most senior was at the top, the least senior was at the bottom. Mine was pretty much on the floor of this sign. Like, you couldn't really see it unless you looked really closely. And that's fine. I mean, that's fine. I'm happy. I'm content. But I just thought it would look a little bit better, a little bit further up the sign. See, for, for 12 months, my only desire was to have my name on that sign. But within seven days, it wasn't nearly enough. And it, what the crazy thing was... There were seven people out there who would literally have killed me to get their name on the sign ahead of me. Barristers, it's difficult. You can't kill each other, you know. But, um, but, but, but they were, I mean, that, that was, my disappointment was someone else's dream. But I couldn't see it. And it's so interesting. We, 
you know, what do you do? But what I find fascinating is where does it, when you think about these desires, you know, Alan de Botton, you have it, adverts uncover a deep buried desire within you. Where does that come from? Why do I have a deep buried desire that an advertiser can access and draw out to try and make me buy a product? Who put those deep desires there in the first place? And if we have these deep desires within us, are they good or bad? Should they be sought after or suppressed? And the people who come to Jesus are hungry for more. They've sailed across the lake. They're desperate to seek him. And he spots straight away that they've tasted this bread and their desire for satisfaction, you know, their desire to have more of this bread that he has provided to them has driven them on. And what I find fascinating is Jesus doesn't spend ages saying to them, stop being hungry, stop seeking satisfaction. He takes their desire and shows how it has to be redirected if they're going to have any hope of satisfaction. See, the thing they're looking for is only going to satisfy them for a day. They need a different sort of food. They need a different sort of bread. It's not that there's necessarily something wrong with our desires, the things we aim them at. It's not that the desires are wrong. It's that the things we aim them at can't carry the weight of them. They were never intended to. It's not going to work just to pretend that you don't have desires. Try and reduce your desires. You've got to work out where they're directed. And C.S. Lewis said this fascinating thing. He said, when we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, in accounts of Jesus' life, like the one that John has written, when we consider the staggering nature of the rewards, it seems that Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like a child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the beach. We're far too easily pleased. I wonder if that ever occurred to you, that your greatest challenge might not be that you want too much, but that you want too little. That your greatest difficulty in life might not be that your desires are too great, but that they're too weak. Not that you settle, but that you don't settle. And Jesus makes this most remarkable claim. He says to them, you need the bread of God, he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, well, give us this bread. You know, if this bread is as amazing as you say, give it to us. You know, there's so much at stake. Give us this bread. And it seems like they're expecting a transaction to get a supply. And Jesus is offering them a relationship with himself, with a savior. And Jesus says, he says boldly, you know, the word he uses so boldly, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the very thing that will sustain you, the very thing that will satisfy you, the very thing that your, your buried longing is seeking, though you don't realize it. It's me. I'm it. And that's what I found. Sometimes people say to me, why, why do you believe in Jesus? Why did you place your trust in Jesus? One of the reasons I still do now, all these years later, with all I've seen, all I've experienced, all the arguments I've heard, is because it's real. 
Because my lived experience over those years of life with Jesus demonstrates to me that what he says here is true. I have found him to be my satisfaction in a way that nothing else in my life, the things I had set my heart on and achieved and enjoyed, nothing else in my life has come close to. I found in Jesus an eternal life, a life of equality that changes anything. Jesus doesn't just satisfy your desires. He is your satisfaction. It might be your desires are not too great, they're too weak. That he's the very thing those desires are about. You know, if God has put eternity in your hearts, nothing else will ultimately satisfy you because you can't satisfy eternal longings with temporary fixes. It just won't meet it. And he doesn't just give you what he needs. He gives you himself. What does that mean? How does that happen? Well, do you know every... um, kind of food, except for just a few minerals, if you want to receive it, if you want to take sustenance and nourishment from it, you have to break it. Sometimes we do that with our teeth. Sometimes we do that with a knife and fork. Sometimes we do that with something else. But you have to break it. And Jesus said he's the bread of life. He was broken, broken for me and for you on the cross. Broken so that we might receive him. Broken so that all the things I've done wrong, all the mistakes I've made, all of my sin, all that separates me from God is washed away, white clean, so that I might come to him and receive that eternal life that he promises. Jesus is the bread of life. He is broken for you on the cross so you might be able to receive him. He gives himself for you, but he also gives himself to you. And that's my experience. That's why I'm a Christian. You know, that's what I'm going to be speaking about tomorrow lunchtime and the, the rest of this week. You know, There's lots of reasons why. But actually, I have found that Jesus is entirely consistent with what He says here, throughout this book, in all its places, and I can tell you, I've made mistakes, I've got regrets, I've messed up far more times than I care to remember. I am far from perfect, but I've experienced exactly what Jesus promises here. I've experienced that satisfying life with Jesus. Jesus, life with Jesus has been more fulfilling than I ever hoped, more satisfying than I ever dared to dream. And Jesus says, all you need to do to receive it is to believe, to place your trust in the one whom God has sent in Jesus.